0: We are continuing a study in the Old Testament of Proverbs, and if you haven't been with us, this is a book of the Old Testament that's, that's uh, considered wisdom literature, and when you hear the word wisdom, don't, so, don't think so much of getting smarter or more book smarts or being the most well-read person in the room, but think in terms of a God-given competence to navigate the complexities of life, a skill for navigating the confusion and the complexity of life. Because life is complicated and it throws new stuff at you all the time. And the way we're studying this is where the Proverbs are not writ- written like an outline, and they're not written where all the topics are batched together. You just kind of have to grab from here, so I don't know if you call that collating or batching, but we're drawing on these different proverbs. And trying to consider these different themes. So the theme this morning is adultery and fidelity. And if you're on our church email list, you already received an email from us about this, just to give you a heads up that this was coming. And uh, as I said in the email, I want to be aware of the fact that there's children in the room. And as as I try to say from time to time, I don't want to be more earthy from up front than the Bible, but I don't want to be less earthy than the Bible from up front. And there is something about this that's more intense. Uh, after preaching at 8:30, I kind of thought, you know, I think I want to do something a little easier next week, <laughs> like maybe bomb diffusion. <laughs> let me tell you what we're trying to to look at, and let me start with what we're not addressing this morning. First off, we're not addressing everything about sexuality and all the questions about sexuality that our culture is asking right now. That's just such a massive, all-encompassing topic. We're really looking at a pretty thin slice of just sexuality. And just so that we're on the same page, and I'm I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence, but there there really is a good bit of biblical illiteracy on this point. So just so that we're on the same page, the biblical term for a single person having sex is fornication. And that could be a person who's never married or a person who had been married and now is not. But but having sex as a single person outside of marriage would be called, on that person's part, fornication. Someone who is married, having sex with someone who is not his or her spouse, that's adultery. And um, the way these Proverbs are coming to us I want you to remember that if you read through Proverbs as a whole, a lot of times you, you hear like an instructor saying, my son, my son. And it's not necessarily a dad to his, to his son, but it's, it's a teacher talking probably to young men, young students learning these Proverbs in community with each other. So as it's talking about sexual temptation and the potential for adultery, the way it's cast is as a woman who is a temptress. Who, who is an, an adulteress? And I had questions after the eight thirty service, you know, along the lines of, "Well, hey, that's, it's not like a one sided deal. This, you know, there's that that goes both ways. Of course it does. Of course it does." And I had a professor in a seminary that used to say, because we would be peppering our teachers with questions, and after a while he would say, "Guys, guys, you can't say everything at once, you know. And and the Bible doesn't cover everything at once in every passage. So as it's talking about." This person who tempts and is alluring and is a snare, she's presented as a woman. It applies to to both spouses, okay? So I just want to acknowledge that on the front end. It's not throwing women under the bus. There's plenty of culpability to go around. Uh, Let me say this too, and then I'll read it. I'm not covering all that the Bible says about what sex means. It means a lot of different things. So, I'm I'm, I'm focusing where the Proverbs focus. It's young men, it applies to any believer, but it's young men being instructed in the way of wisdom, and there's a no, and there's a yes. So, let's look at these Proverbs. I'm going to start in chapter 2, and I'm sort of jumping in to the middle of a presentation by the instructor. So he's saying, all right, you've got to have wisdom. You've got to look for it and find it. And if you do, if you find it, here's a benefit. Chapter 2, verse 16. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Here's a description of a young man being tempted by this woman. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag full of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two edged sword. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely doe, a graceful deer. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas and the way of a man with a virgin. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are sexual beings and our culture is just saturated and charged with it and we have mishandled it. And the way we think about it and feel about it and talk about it is broken. And so we just desperately need your help. And we pray that even this morning where there's conviction, there'll be great healing and there'll be good news. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a book that came out several years ago. and. Um, It's a book about sex called Real Sex by a Christian writer. And uh, she's very honest about the fact that she went into authoring this book and went into marriage as somebody who had not been sexually pure herself and had regrets, uh, but was trying to learn how, as a Christian, to rightly use this this gift. So she writes about sex. And there's there's two chapters that are back-to-back in that book. And one of them is called lies that our culture tells about sex. Now, you're sort of not surprised to hear that in a Christian book about sexuality, lies that the culture tells. But then the next chapter in the book is lies that the church tells about sex. And the one that she leads off with is basically a version of, hey, God designed this, and if you, use, if you misuse sexuality if you use sexuality outside of the marriage covenant, you're not really going to enjoy it. And she just says, that is patently false. Let me quote to you from a piece, this was in the New York Times several years ago, and it's called A Roomful of Yearning and Regret. And it's written by a woman who cheated on her husband, and then later he cheated on her. So she experienced infidelity both as the adulteress and then... The victim. Uh, She says this, The great sex, by the way, is a given. When you have an affair, you already know you will have passionate sex. The urgency, the newness, and illicit nature of the affair practically guarantees that. What you don't know, or perhaps what you don't allow yourself to think about, is that your life will become an unbearable mix of yearning and regret because of it. It will be difficult, if not impossible, to to be in any one place with contentment. This is no way for an adult to live. When you're with your lover, you'll be working on your alibi and feeling loathsome. When you're with your spouse, you'll be dying to return to your love nest. When you are at home, everything in your life will look just a little bit out of register. The furniture, the food in the refrigerator, your children, your dog... Because you've detached yourself from your normal point of reference. And it now belongs to a reality you've abandoned. And that's from the New York Times. And I think what she describes very capably, and, and with, if I can say it, credibility, is that there's this mix. Don't say it's not exciting. And don't say that the sex wasn't intense. And all this other stuff too. The, um, there's quite a few proverbs about adultery and fidelity and sexuality. Let me tell you how I want to lay this out. Uh, this and I hope this encourages you, encourages you kind of about the Bible as a whole. That the biblical ethic is never just no; it's no, but rather yes. So it's not just hey, don't be a hateful person. It's yeah, don't be a hateful person, but rather Put on love. Do love and care about people and be kind. And we could just give example after example. Well, that, that really relates to this. God in His Word, because this is not just like ancient maxims of wisdom that we're sort of taking time out and it's kind of quaint to think about these ancient maxims. This is God in His Word in the form of these Proverbs saying, There's a no to married sex. And there's a yes to married sex. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the no because of the Proverbs. But I do want to get to the yes, okay? So let's start with the no. What, what we're talking about is what the New Testament book of Hebrews calls the marriage bed. So what's the no of the marriage bed? First off, you've got this character that shows up. Uh, and, and what she's called in, in several Proverbs is the forbidden woman. Like at that top passage, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress. And then a few down from there, it talks about, um, you know, her lips drip honey, the forbidden woman. So when you hear that, who do you think of? You know, like the, when, when Israelite young men heard this, I wonder who they thought of when they first heard about the forbidden woman that they've got to be careful of. Did they think about this like Philistine temptress, you know, with lots of eye makeup, or this beautiful Egyptian pagan woman, really made up, very, very sensual. And as, as it turns out, who she actually is, is really different than that. And like, I don't know what your mental picture was in our cultural setting. Is it an escort or the single bar hopping woman who's promiscuous? Okay, here's how she's presented to us. Now, again, I, hear me. We're using the template that Proverbs gives. This crosses genders. There are men who do this. There are women who do this. But as these young men are being trained in wisdom, what is the description of this person who's a snare? All right, first off, she's married. Go back to the first passage. It says, you'll be delivered, up at the top, you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, What? Who forsakes the companion of her youth. Now, who is that? That's her husband. And then go down to the next passage from chapter 7. She goes out, she meets this young man. She says, uh, let's take our fill of love till morning. Let's delight ourselves with love for my husband is not at home. So first off, she's married But to me, this was even the the, the bigger surprise. Look look at what else you find out about her. Go back to the top passage. Verse 17, chapter 2. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Now, that's not a way the Bible talks about the Egyptians or the Moabites or the Philistines. So what's being described here? A married woman who's what? In the community of people who are in covenant with God. He's describing an Israelite. And look at this next passage. Again, from chapter 7, that second passage. She's talking to this young man, and you know she seizes him, she kisses him, and she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. And in Hebrew, it says, I had to offer peace offerings. Those are Israelite offerings. And today, I've just paid my vows. So, in other words... This is not the, you know, seductive, temptress, Las Vegas call girl. This is the married woman in the covenant community. And, you know, of all the jarring things that I'm going to say this morning, uh, this one is especially jarring to say, as a pastor, you know, when you hear about pastors falling through adultery uh, or other church staff, I mean, overwhelmingly, with whom do they fall? Is it usually escorts or prostitutes? I mean, that, yeah, that can happen. But overwhelmingly, they fall with whom? A married woman in the church. It strikes very close to home. Uh, but here's the problem. She's in the covenant community, but she's not in the covenant community. She's, she's forbidden. In fact, some translations say she's strange. Think about it this way. Uh, in one of the newer Planet of the Apes movies, there's this, this big fight scene between the lead ape, Caesar, who's a good ape, and Coba, who is a very bad ape. And apes respect strength, so it's sort of like a fight to the death as to who's going to lead you know, the apes. So Caesar and Coba are just going at it and finally get one of these movie moments where Coba is hanging off this precipice and Caesar... Grabs him, So it's one of those kind of movie scenes like that. So Coba's hanging there and he looks up at Caesar. And this is after Coba's been trying to kill him. He's killed other apes. He's been shooting at apes. And he quotes to Caesar one of the like main laws of the apes. It's sort of like out of their Ten Commandments. Apes do not kill apes. So Koba is looking up at Caesar as he's got him. After Coba's been trying to kill him and says, apes do not kill apes. And Caesar says, You are not an ape. Boop. Now that's interesting. Because Koba is an ape externally. But he's not an ape. In the New Testament, Paul, who Hebrew, Jewish, devout Jewish, he says in his letter to the Romans, not Everyone who's a Jew outwardly is a Jew inwardly, a heart Jew. Or in another place he says, not all Israel, like ethnic Israel, is Israel. And that's true. This is an example of a woman married in the covenant community, but she's not married and she's not in the covenant community in here. And and one way you see that that manifest itself is, uh, well, just how she thinks about what they're doing and and love itself. Look at that second passage again. She goes out to the man. She says, I had to offer sacrifices, peace offerings. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. And, And I have to admit, for me in my own reflection on this this week, I felt like the penny dropped Because the way I've always read that passage is where she's just, I've always read it that she's equating love with sex, and something finally registered with me, and again, I'm not trying to be overly graphic, but the act of sex is not like eight or nine unbroken hours. So what is she calling love? And what she's calling love is excitement. And that, that actually can give us a lot of insight because here's the thing if if you equate love with an experience that is exciting to your insides, like how you make me feel, the connection I feel with you, the chemistry and the spark I feel with you. As you know, if this is a married young man, as he experiences that with her, and then the next day he goes back to his home, what does he go back to? Chores, the mundane The day-in, day-out, long-term commitment, which feels what? Not exciting. And if you equate love with excitement, at that point, when you go back to the person you've made a covenant with and it feels mundane and drab, what do you feel? Well, then I guess we don't have love, and I, I finally have found love. Which frees her up to say what? This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. And she feels that acutely. I, mean, I know it's kind of cliche and 70s and corny, but it is kind of the, it, how could it be wrong? It feels so right. Uh, what does she use to, to get him? Now again, cuts both ways, men use this, women use this, but, but how is she presented? And one big one is words. Go back to the top passage again. You will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. Go down to the fourth passage from chapter 5. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Now that could seem more the connotation of kissing. But then it says, and her speech is smoother than oil. How does adultery typically begin? Does it begin with a big passionate explosion? Overwhelmingly, it begins with what? Talking and time. Coupled with one other thing. Look at that next passage from uh, chapter 6, verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. That's, that can play into it. Her looks. Grab the man. Then it says, "And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes." Isn't that weird? And I don't know if that conjures up this image of like just this impossibly seductive kind of Jessica Rabbit woman, and it's like just her eyelashes almost have air resistance; they're so they're so big. But but think about think about what extended eye contact does, especially if you're if you've got a man and he feels he feels uninteresting. And he doesn't feel desired, or he just feels bored, or he just feels like, oh my goodness, this whole marriage family thing is like an ultra marathon that I didn't know was this long. And then there's this person looking at him, and she's looking at him like he's interesting. She's talking to him like he's interesting. And he feels valued, and he feels interesting. He feels desired. He feels known. And and that's the bait. And, uh, you know, I don't want us all on eggshells about how much eye contact we make with one another. You know, like, did you hear about the Netflix, the workplace office of Netflix? Now you're limited to five seconds of eye contact with your coworkers because of the Me Too movement. Can you imagine anything as chilling as that? You can only look at each other for five seconds. So, like, in the body of Christ, I think we can have more than that. So, don't get a chill if I look at you for longer than five seconds in the sermon or in the lobby. Or if you look at each other for that length of time. But uh, no, there's supposed to be a warmth and an interest and an, an attentiveness between us. But I'm talking about logging time. Time plus words plus connection becomes physical. And then what happens? Uh, chapter 6, verse 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest? Can his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Let me read from this article again. This woman who had had an affair, her husband had had an affair, says she was talking with a friend of hers who was considering having an affair. And so she said I was trying to give her advice. So, so, let me just quote here. I suggested to her, by picturing yourself in the therapist's office with your betrayed husband after you've been found out, and she says in parentheses, and you will be found out. You will hear yourself saying you cheated because your needs weren't being met. The spark was gone. You were bored in your marriage. Your lover understands you better. One or another version of this excuse will cross your lips like some dark, knee-jerk, Hallmark card sentiment. And then she says this, Once the affair is out in the open, you will strive mightily to justify yourself. You will begin many sentences with the phrase, I never meant to, but one look at the hollow-eyed, defeated form of your spouse will remind you that such a claim is beside the point. You can both get over this, yes, but the innocence will have gone out of your union, and it will seem as if a bone has been broken and healed, but one that rain or cold weather can set to throbbing again. That's really perceptive. So, the no of the marriage bed, let me just say this in no uncertain terms. If you are beginning to dabble, if you are right now in the stages of just the, we're talking more than we used to, and you know there's a spark there, or if you have crossed the line, and you are committing adultery, you must cease and desist. You, you cannot manage it. You must cease and desist. That being said... What is the great privilege of the church? The great privilege of the church is to proclaim the gospel. The great privilege of a preacher is to get to preach the gospel. Okay, I think you've heard the law. You will be found out. Even if your spouse doesn't find out, your conscience already knows and will begin to attack you. One Puritan said, "Your conscience is God's spy in your bosom, and when it turns on you, it is doing what it is supposed to do. So then, what do you do? Wallow." And this this one proverb is not in your bulletin, but I, I just want to read it to you. And in, in God's plan, this proverb is set almost right smack dab in the middle of Proverbs. It's just sort of sitting there by itself. Chapter 16, verse 6, and just listen. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Have you sexually sinned? Single person? Married person? Are you an adulterer? Are you an adulteress? There's no way for this many people to be untouched by this. God is no friend of adultery. But God sent His Son for adulterers. And and when Jesus came and not just proclaimed the good news, but then became the sacrifice for our sins... He knew exactly who he was laying his life down for. He was laying his life down for fornicators and adulterers and people who are absorbed with pornography and every other version of sexual sin and brokenness. And he says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you forgiveness from your sins. I'll give you connection to the God who offers you the intimacy that you really seek that no lover is going to be able to satisfy. And I want you to believe that. That right there in the old 3,000-year-old Proverbs is this little beacon saying, Hey, 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 this is real. Don't dabble. Don't play. You will be burned. You will be found out. But because of God's steadfast love and faithfulness... Your sin can be atoned for. Turn to him and fear him and turn from your sin. So that's the no. What about the yes? I'm going to be a little bit briefer, but not not totally brief. The yes" of the marriage bed. A couple of things. Number one: it can be blissful. Uh, next to the last passage, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And I'm going to emphasize this again. It is in the context of marriage. A lovely doe, a graceful deer, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. And there's a parallel passage in Song of Solomon, which is very erotic. It's veiled, but it's erotic. Where you've got... This exhortation being given to the lover and the beloved that they are to be drunk with love. Blissful. Um, And it's mysterious. Look at the the last proverb. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. And that would be either a man on the way to marriage or one who's just now reaching it. And it's, great. it's like, at one level, you could explain all this stuff with physics. Like where we live, our house, I don't see eagles, but we have these red-tailed hawks. And you'll hear it. it's a very distinctive hawk screech. And so sometimes you'll look up, and especially in the summer, warm air, and it's kind of, I guess you'd say thermals, and you've got these hawks just, you know, like Oklahoma says, making lazy circles in the sky. So they're just kind of up there doing their thing. And I guess they're looking out for mice and lunch and all that. But they, it's like they're just kind of, oh, I don't know, I just like it. I'm just going to do this for a while. Or it's like when you're at the beach and there's some, one of these, you know, coastal birds. And it's just, you know, like sometimes they'll almost just fly beside you. And you think, what are you doing? Like you're not getting anywhere. Why are you going into, they, I, you know, you could explain it all with physics. But it's like it's sort of a mystery. It is a mystery. And Proverbs says that's how marital intimacy is. I, I've had more than one husband, I've heard more than one husband say they thought it's the closest thing in real life to magic. And it's, and it's not always going to feel the same. It's not always going to be 10 out of 10, but that, that there can be moments where, like, sort of time stops and the grind of life, you don't feel it like you did. And you feel this connection. And dare we say it, you don't just feel your spouse's love, but you feel that God loves you. And He wants you to feel that. And there's a real irony, too, that, uh, well, let let me put it this way. There's a southern writer from North Carolina, a guy named Richard Weaver. Uh, He said... I love this statement. He said, efficiency and charm are mortal enemies. If you want to go for just efficiency, optimization, great. You'll get a lot of stuff done, and you'll have very little charm. So what is the implication of that for the bedroom for a husband and wife? You know what? There are probably more and more spouses who have sexy appearances now into their 40s, 50s, 60s because they are working out, and they are disciplined, and they are regimented, and they are careful about their diet, and they only eat clean food, and they hydrate with a certain kind of water. And that can all be great stuff to be a good steward of your, of your body. But if what that does is sort of your whole life is just goal and task and discipline and future orientation, that's terrible for the bedroom. Because the bedroom is about the present and about savoring. I, mean, I love I love this proverb, uh, the next to the last one. Saying it's like this could be talking to a sixty-something, seventy-something plus year-old husband, saying, "Look at your wife." And it doesn't talk about you know. Wow, she used to be your pretty wife. It says in the present tense. Would you look at her and what she is to you? This loving doe, this graceful deer, and would you just slow down and look at her and delight in her? I mean, uh, marital intimacy does a lot of things, but one thing it does, it's like a covenant renewal. I don't mean through ritual or even through words, but it says we still belong to one another and we still belong to God. And I like saying this from the pulpit. Husbands and wives, you need to prioritize it. It gets crowded out by efficiency. It gets crowded out by fatigue. It gets crowded out by the tyranny of the urgent. It gets crowded out by scrolling through your feed. Prioritize inefficient lovemaking. good to be in church today. <laughs> Let me end with this. Um, I, I, I recently rewatched Henry V, Shakespeare play, Henry V. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's really good. The big plot line in Henry V is war between England and France, and Henry V is the king of England. And so, England defeats France at the Battle of Agincourt, which really happened. But the end of the play is now on the heels of that victory, Henry meets with this French contingency, these royals, and the princess is there, Princess Catherine, and Henry wants to propose to her to marry her. So, like, they're just coming off this wiping out of the French military, and now he's coming as enemy number one and saying, I want to marry this, this French princess and Catherine. So, and he's bad at speaking French. She's bad at speaking English. So they're struggling to communicate with one another and they have an interpreter. But finally, he says this excuse me, she says to him, and Shakespeare wrote this like she's a French speaker trying to speak English. And so she says, Is it possible that I should love the enemy of France? And Henry says, No. It is not possible you should love the enemy of France, Kate. But in loving me, you should love the friend of France. For I love France so well that I will not part with the village of it. I will have it all mine. And then he says, you know what? And if I have France and you have me, then you have France. And you have me. And that sounds like Jesus. Jesus. You know, because I just I, let me just hit this right square, straight on. If you're the person who's sitting here and thinking, Well, I'm not married and I would love to be married and I'm trying to be chaste, S H A S T E, but I would love to experience sexual intimacy, but I, I can't because of what God is saying. In some ways, this is very frustrating to hear this. I, I, I want to respect that and just say thank you for hearing me out. But here's the thing a spouse will not ultimately satisfy you. Great married sex, prioritized and celebrated, will not ultimately satisfy you. What our hearts are made for, be ye single or married or divorced or whatever. We want God to kiss us. And we want a face to kiss us, like a physical person to be there. And God became man. And He doesn't just want to teach us and just forgive us and just lead us, although He does all that. He wants to marry us and consummate the wedding. When I was a new Christian... One night I was sitting at home in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was watching some local preacher, It's African-American preacher. I'm like in 11th grade, and it's probably like midnight, and he's preaching a sermon. He says, you better learn how to make love to God, or he's going to make love to somebody else. And my head blew up. <laughs> but he was exactly right. That is a dominant Old Testament and New Testament theme is that God doesn't just marry His people. He makes love to His people. That's why idolatry is called what? Adultery. Or us playing the whore. I know I'm throwing the kitchen sink at you, but here's what I want to say. Your soul wants Jesus to marry you. So don't date him. Marry him. And the end of the Bible is a wedding and a wedding feast and consummation and bliss. That is the story. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, where there's been conviction or cutting please pour in the balm of the good news and heal and comfort. Turn our hearts to You. Grant us repentance. Grant us purity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.